Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Grants podcast. With me today is uh, is the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grants. Eric Whitehead is the controls, and I am Jim Grant. And I'm a little self conscious today, Evan, because I just read something in the Wall Street Journal that um, was talking about how um, the podcast listeners are now speeding up the rate at which they listen, like one x. Uh, of course, that's normal. Then one point two x. And they find that that's intelligible, so they go 2x, 3x, 4x, and finally they get chipmunk speed to like 5x. So I'm thinking that by talking normally, I am inducing people, and through their sheer impatience with the cadence of the thing, I'm inducing them to make me sound like a chipmunk. Yeah, it's a heck of a thing, but that's technology, you know. Today's topic, ladies and gentlemen, is risk. Evan, it's a big thing around here. And what we're going to do is uh, talk about uh, how we see the world with respect to risk, preceding that, by the way, with a, a little definitional work about what the heck is risk. And we're going to review some of the, uh, the great and not so great Grant's calls with regard to risk. So, Evan, I want you to begin by defining us for risk. I ask you because neither Eric Whitehead at the controls nor I am a CFA, but you are a CFA one, two, and three. Have you got to four yet? Uh, there is no four. Well, that sounds kind of defeatist to me. But anyway, tell us, what is risk? Very simply, for the market, it's uh, it's volatility. And when you pair down to stocks, uh, it's a stock's volatility measured relative to the volatility for the market. Right. That's what the CFAs say. But isn't risk not getting your money back? Isn't it the permanent impairment of capital? Isn't that the everyday common sense pre-CFA definition? It depends whether you're running a fund or whether you're an investor. If you're an investor, it's definitely permanent loss of capital. If you're a fund, you're measured against volatility. All right. Okay. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that uh, we're measured against volatility. Volatility is dead in the water. So is the world less risky on that account, or is it perhaps paradoxically more risky? I would say more risky. Um, as we're talking right now, the VIX actually is trading below 10. Its long-term average uh, since it started in 1990 is about 20. So it's trading at about half its long-term average right now. So the, so the markets, at least as measured by the VIX, is half as risky as its long-term average. Right. But if everyone thinks it's not risky, what does that say about risk? That it could be piling up in, in large and unpredictable ways. Well, we at Grant's Interest Rate Observer had some experience in just that topic. And uh, we go through some of our episodes, uh, glorious and otherwise, in our long and sometimes storied history. Let me see um, where to begin. Well, let's go back 30 years. Let's go back 30 years. And... Um, the headline I'm now looking at is called Nipponomania, and the uh, date of the issue of grants is February 9th, 1987. And uh, this piece lays out a bearish case for Japan, having to do with extreme overvaluation, leverage, and general derangement of stuff, uh, financial stuff, of uh, Zytec, high-tech investing, institutional Traders, uh, bull market genius type of traders would uh, bat around stocks and bonds uh, in a kind of a technical way. Um, Graham and Dodd were old fogies, long forgotten. So um, anyway, we, we set out our case here in February 9th, 1987. Now, Evan, you're much too young to recall this. But the peak of the Japanese market was not February 10th, 1987, nor was it the 11th, nor 12th. Nor was it February 9th, 1988 or 9. The peak of the Japanese market was December 31st, 1989. Okay, that's about three years from the date of our publication. But actually, if you measure it in 
pain, suffering, annoyance, and opportunity cost. That's about 30 years worth. So that's an example of seeing something, of seeing risk, uh, but seeing it in such an early fashion as to make it, shall we say, a little less than useful for the everyday financial practitioner. And let us, uh, yeah, let's, uh, while on the sore subject of real errors around here, let's go over another one. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you listening can take this up to 6x speed now. There's no, listen, no use listening to the details of this sorry story. The date of the next Grant's story is May 26, 1995. And the headline, yes, the headline is Sell Common Stocks. Who wrote this? Oh, yeah, fine, I did. Uh, here's the lead paragraph. Mr. Market has become his own greatest advertisement. Even on the odd day when somebody forgets to bid and the Dow Jones Industrial Average does by mistake go down, everybody knows it will presently go up because the Beardstown ladies want it so. Beardstown ladies were then the, uh, the odd lot heroines of the stock market. They wrote a book on how easy it was, and it did seem that easy. Okay, that's May 26, 1995. And our reason was, our reason was that the market was selling above its replacement cost, above what they call in the trade Tobin's Q. The thinking is that uh, when stocks are valued above their replacement cost, opportunistic investors in the corporate realm will build new plants, uh, bring down margins through competition, and the market will return to its replacement cost. That's called competition. That's a theory. Now, Evan, that's 1995. The market did not go down in 1995, nor 1996, nor 7, nor 8, nor 9. It went down starting in March 2000. Anyway, those are two examples of, on the one hand, in the case of Japan, seeing a truly palpable danger emerge. On the other hand, going off kind of half-cocked on a theory that, while certainly pleasing as a theory, is, uh, is shall we say, not of everyday um, utility. Oh, speaking of theories, speaking of theories, uh, let's us uh, press forward uh, to the present day. We're going to go back to some of our great and glorious calls. We're pressing forward to the present day. We had the pleasure, or if you will, uh, the irritation of listening to Janet Yellen hold forth on not one day, but two days before Congress. And what she said was um, that the risks to the U.S. economy are approximately equal weighted to the upside and the downside. Now, thank you very much. I don't know. I mean, what has she paid to say these things? Probably not enough, but uh, still, it seems like a very anodyne thing to say at this moment in finance. I think I'm not exaggerating things by saying that the Fed, to us at Grants, is at the center of the present structure, as you will, of, of risk, right? It's, it's, it's these central banks the world over that have manhandled interest rates, therefore have disarranged valuations and uh, pulled forward consumption, pushed back the recognition of business failure, generally messed with our sense of perception. Therefore, they are the agents of risk. They're not our defenders against risk. They are the creators of it. All right. So, that being the case, Evan, tell us about the nature of everyday risk, not forgetting the risk of wolverines. Risk is unpredictable. It can come from almost any source. It can build up at times of tranquility, which is something that we might be seeing today. But no matter how good somebody does their homework, something unpredictable can happen. I mean, the, the world is just replete with examples like this. My favorite is um, Agnico Eagle in early 2011. So imagine yourself uh, as a, a gold mining company. It's a gold mining company. Yeah. So imagine yourself a mining analyst. You've done all the work figuring out the exact cost of extraction for Agnico Eagle. You've 
made projections for the price of gold for 2011. You've talked to management. You've, you've visited every mine. You have a good sense of what this company is. Well, in early 2011, a repair person was supposed to go underneath one of the company's kitchens and none of it, none of it being far north Canada, where in the winter, if something goes wrong, you, you basically are, you know, kind of shutting down production and was going to repair one of the, the lines there. He found a Wolverine. So the repair guy wisely decided to let the Wolverine sleep underneath the kitchen and come back the next day. Unfortunately, that uh, unrepaired electrical wire uh, set the kitchen on fire. After the kitchen caught on fire, the company was not able to repair it till the next summer. That actually set Agnico Eagle's production of gold down 14% that year. So uh, imagine yourself as that perspicacious, um, hardworking analyst who'd done all your homework, and all of a sudden there's a Wolverine under the kitchen in Canada yeah, that shuts down a mine. I would correct a little bit that statement. I, I would say this analyst did most of his homework. Did he check the Wolverine box? I hardly think so, Evan. Yeah. Well, everybody talks about black swans. I mean, there's usually a black swan box, but there's usually not a, a wolverine box. Uh, well, you got to expect that, though, in the case of uh, Agnico Eagle in 2011. This episode of uh, Grant's podcast is brought to you by the Pitney Bowes SendPro. Now, did you know that uh, compared to uh, Stamps.com, SendPro has three times the features at one-third the price? Well, it is true. You can print stamps on your computer and call it the Internet of Stamps if you like. And you can if you like. Uh, still, or if you want to, you can wait in the line at the post office. It's all the same to Pitney Bowes. But actually, it is not the same to Pitney Bowes. They want you to at least try the Send Pro. No special equipment required. You can print paid shipping labels for the U.S. Postal Service, UPS, and more. You can track your shipments from the same easy-to-use interface. You can save money, too. Now, Pitney Bowes has negotiated special rates for SendPro use with savings starting at three cents a stamp. Want to learn more? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, visit uh, pb.com slash grantspod. That is pd.com slash grantspod uh, to find out about an introductory, introductory offer that uh, features 90 free days of SendPro along with what the Pitney Bowes people insist on describing as a free... 10-pound scale. Now, yeah, this is kind of a sore point right here. We've mentioned this before. I don't think, I never thought it was like 10 pounds of a scale. That would be absurd. You have to ship it. It would probably be impossible. So uh, we, we sent away for the um, send probes uh, because, you know, we, uh, or, uh, we want to get the facts around here. And we weighed the send pro scale. And I'm telling you, it's not 10 pounds. It's not nine pounds. Eight. It is one pound, eight ounces. That's not, is that close to 10 pounds? No. Not even close. I don't think it's close to 10. But anyway, it's, it's one heck of a scale. It looks good, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Uh, so Freescale registers weights of up to 10 pounds. And uh, you know, let us know here at Grants when you get your scale and when you go on SendPro. We think that you're going to find it most satisfactory. So thank you, Pitney Bowes. So where were we? Oh, yeah, so risk, risk. So that's, so um, the Wolverine risk would fall under the more generic category of stuff happens in life, right? Yeah. Now, is that in the Fed's model? No. Um, the, the Fed has these gigantic, dynamic, stochastic, uh, general equilibrium models that until recently didn't even really have a financial system in there. Um, I, don't, I don't think they have Wolverines or, or swans or other items like that. Well, the, the Fed is all about uh, kind of left-brained modeling of quantitative and quantifiable things, no? And uh, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. It did not work in the case, for example, of a very elegant Tobin's Q model with respect to the stock market in 1995. I am here to testify to that. 
and the uh, the dynamic stochastic uh, equilibrium general general equilibrium model algebraic calculaic did not work in two thousand four five six seven eight nine so one must be humble in front of the future uh, still one must take a shot one must look for risk knowing that it's likely to be in a place you are not looking so uh, we have at grass some experience in. Uh, in perceiving risk and in perceiving it uh, in an early and not too early time frame. And I, I want to go through some of these things. Evan, you were around for some of these, but not all of them. I'm proud of some of these, I must say. I, I'm going to put some of these up on the website for the inspection of those few thousand people in finance who still have not subscribed to Grant's Interest Rate Observer. But uh, we're going to put these on, the, we're going to put three of them on the website for your inspection next week or so, next couple of days, actually. Right, Eric? Eric's nodding. So one of them has to do with Greece, and the year is now 2005. And uh, the headline is, Now Comes Deconvergence. Now Comes Deconvergence. And here's the first paragraph. On March 2nd, um, uh, Greece sold 30-year bonds, the longest since Odysseus. Just as remarkably, it sold them at a price to yield 445, uh, 26 basis points more only than the yield on 30-year German government debt. Now, Germany is a AAA credit, and uh, that's two full ratings notches better than the sponsor of the 2004 Summer Olympics. Can you believe, uh, parenthetically, that Greece was what? What does it make it a, a single-A Yeah, single-A credit. And we quoted somebody from Reuters saying that, uh, quote, it should attract demand from real money investors who are looking for yield, close quote. Uh, Reuters quoted a European bond investor, and sure enough, it did. So we proposed... Uh, the 26 basis points premium for Greece over Germany was uh, was very thin gruel and that that spread would widen because of the obvious, glaringly obvious, credit disparities between, on the one hand, Germany, and the other hand, Greece. So that was, it seems in retrospect, a very, it seems kind of a simple thing to say, doesn't it? I can assure you at the time that it was kind of audacious. It did. And the most amazing thing in reviewing this article is uh, the way grants, or the way you recommended playing it was Greek CDS. At the time, you quoted 10-year Greek CDS at 14 basis points, just 14 basis points. Yeah, well, it uh, seemed easy. Okay, so that's, uh, that was a 2005. Here comes one. This was, I, I must say, this is, uh, this is a sweet one. And this is, uh, I'm going to uh, credit two of our fast friends of this institution uh, here. One is Alan Fournier, who is the, uh, I think he's still the managing member of Pennant Capital. A very, very successful and uh, altogether classy operation, buys low and sells high. And Alan called to our attention something called the ACE Securities HEL Trust Series 2005-HE5. And this was one of these uh, confabulations of, uh, of mortgage-backed securities. I, I, you know, I, this, this is 10 years ago or 11 years ago. And a lot of the details escape me. I think it's it's kind of a good thing you don't hold on to these details because they're so, I mean, you look back on these structures and you think, what were people thinking about? These things were priced at par. And here was a setup, Evan, in 2006 with respect to the oncoming freight train called the global financial crisis. It's all about housing. Now, in 2006, in the fall of 2006, the following stocks had rolled over because it was becoming obvious that the housing bubble was a bubble and that it was bursting. Toll Brothers, Countrywide Financial, New Century Financial Corp, all these stocks 
had rolled over. What had not rolled over were the tens of hundreds of billions of dollars of worth of these mortgage-backed securities uh, confections, the CDOs, the HEL trusts, the residential mortgage-backed securities, all the rest of this stuff, these alphabetic sand traps, sand traps, nothing, uh, man-eating tigers. I mean, they, they were packed full of this mortgage debt. They were structured so that um, it was uh, calibrated so that you could... Uh, figure out your risk tolerance and you would buy the tranche that was suitable for you and the you know, risk of loss was de minimis, blah, blah, blah. And here is a paragraph out of this thing that struck me as, on rereading is, is so interesting. This was a, uh, I'm not going to name this guy because we'll draw the veil of charity over past errors, except ours, which need to be ventilated just for the sake of, you know, sake of, uh, sake of the ideal of journalism. But here is, is a guy from Moody's, unnamed. Uh, he was quoted by the American banker, this is 2006, saying, why he was asked, is the value of M&A activity in mortgage origination businesses on its way to hitting a decade high? Why are Wall Street's best and brightest so keen to own the companies that lend against the no longer gold-plated collateral of residential real estate? And here's what the man from Moody said. If you have a significant distribution platform, there are many things you can do to move those assets through securitizations and outright sale, among other things, and here's the payoff. What you need is product to feed the machine. Ha! Huh. Close quote. This machine, says Grants, is one of Wall Street's most treasured. It processes mortgages into asset-backed securities and ABS tranches into collateralized debt obligations and CDO tranches into CDOs squared. A CDO squared being, of course, a CDO of CDOs is a wondrous kind of machine that spits out fees for its owners at every step of the manufacturing process. God, that, this was 2006, and these things were selling at 100 cents on the dollar. I mean, John Paulson got it. Many others, in fact, got it. John Paulson being the most luminous case of getting it. But here was risk front and center in boldface type. And are markets efficient, uh, parenthetically? Or? Um, longer term, yeah. In, in the short term, what are they? They're, they're voting machines, and long term, they're weighing machines. Well, I'd say it differently. I'd say the markets are just as efficient as the people who operate in them. Anyway, so that was 2006. All right. So everyone had to have this uh, C-R-A-P-Q-U-E. This is a family station. Everyone had to have it. And then came the global financial crisis, and everyone had to not have it, right? This stuff was tossed overboard, was chucked into raging bonfires. It went down in price. It did. So um, December 2008... Now, this is not, I, th I must say, this is also a kind of a nice thing that Grants did. We had uh, a headline splashed across three columns was introducing the Grants supermodel credit portfolio. Supermodel, because mere model was not good enough. Supermodel. And uh, here is what we said. The investments that stock the supermodel portfolio have had their comeuppance already. They deserved it. Credit had a heart attack last year on account of its scandalously loose living during the bubble years. Still remorseful and weak as a kitten, the institution of lending and borrowing is gathering strength and for the next cycle. A not bad time to invest, we think. All right. So that was credit then. Evan, tell us about credit now. I, I, want, a, I want a quick CFA quality overview of the pricing of credit, the structure of credit, and the attitude towards credit on the part of professional investors today? It's, um, it's a great time to be an issuer. 
Um, Moody's came out the other day and said that um, they, they rate um, covenant quality of high yield bonds, and they started doing this in 2011. They said that last month, June, was the worst since they've been keeping records. Um, worst for whom? Um, worst for people buying the credit. Ah. It's great for people issuing. Okay. So again, great that. for issuers. Yeah. Um, the um, is it Department of Justice or SEC is doing an investigation for um, um, online securitizers of um, of uh, consumer loans. It seems like um, liars' loans are back in, uh, in in kind of vogue now. At the same time, BlackRock is going around knocking at every door because they want to raise a large new ETF of uh, asset backed uh, securities, and they're worried there's not going to be enough issuance to actually you know fill the ETF. Evan, I'm so glad you brought that up. I want to uh, recall to our listeners something I read to you a few minutes ago, uh, excerpt from the uh, 2006 expose of one of these newfangled securities machines. And this again is the fellow from Moody's explaining why the street was doing so much of this M&A and doing so much of this issuance. Quote, what you need is product to feed the machine, right? So what does BlackRock need? Needs more product. To feed the machine. The machine, right. All right. So um, remember on this very, very same channel, actually, a, a couple of weeks ago, we quoted a, the uh, president of Deutsche Bank saying what? Saying with, with, with respect to credit. I remember what he said was that uh, no thanks to the ECB. In fact, thanks to the ECB and its massive indiscriminate buying of fixed income securities, uh, the distinctions between and among ratings categories and issuers was being obscured to the point of uh, vanishing. And uh, if you can't price credit intelligently, where are you, he asked rhetorically. Well, we know where we are. We're kind of in the soup, right? So this gets back, this, so this somewhat wide-ranging discussion of credit and risk over the course of 30 years, it, it comes back, at least it comes back to me to the central banks at the present moment. I, I say this, that they are the, they are the bubble. Yeah. And it's a, it's cyclical. I mean, um, July actually is the 10 year anniversary of Chuck Prince, um, the, the former, um, uh, CEO of Citigroup who came out and said, when the music stops in terms of liquidity, things will be complicated, but as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. We're still dancing. Yeah. Well, Evan, we, we can't do any better than that quotation. I wish to end this uh, tutorial on risk and a review of what we have done right and wrong over the course of, uh, I guess we call it a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening at whatever speed you have chosen to listen. And until next time, this is uh, Grant's Interest Trade Observer. Mm -hmm.